Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. If darkness is what you're after, seek no more your searches through. You haven't found the darkness, Traveler. The darkness has found you. The intro tonight's a little bit on the longest side, so feel free to skip it if it pleases you. I will not hold it against you. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 9. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and I'm thrilled you could join me tonight. We have another special episode tonight, and don't you worry, absolutely no jokes in this one, and no additional content warning, so that's good. But first, I'd like to talk a little bit about things that inspire me. Two things to be specific. Things that occupy my thoughts for at least a few seconds out of every single day, and that is not an exaggeration. First, the video games published by From Software that is the Dark Souls Bloodborne series, of which astute listeners will have recognized small references to them, peppered here and there throughout the seasons. Yeah, I just can't help myself. And second, the one that concerns this episode, and formed the foundation of my love of horror, is the collected works of Howard Phillips Lovecraft. True, maybe a little done to death in the horror narration sphere, but there's a very good reason for that. I discovered Lovecraft when I was a junior in high school, and his work has consumed me ever since. I have never gotten tired of it. I have never moved on from it. I have never grown out of it. That man's ideas take up enough real estate in my brain to potentially form a lethal brain tumor. Was he an imperfect man? Oh, he certainly was. And fans of HBO's Lovecraft Country will be familiar with some of the more controversial aspects of his catalog. But... The work is just too important. And, whether we like it or not, modern horror would not be what it is today without Howard Phillips Lovecraft. 
and last week I just couldn't fight it anymore, I had to do a reading of his for the show. I chose a story that has not been quite as overdone, has at least not been featured on the Chilling Tales network before, and demonstrates, in my opinion, better than most, the sheer scope of his imagination. The story is The Shadow Out of Time, and it will span two episodes of Horror Hill. And after that, well, we might just do another one, with a much shorter intro, I promise. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now... Allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies, and nightmares come to life, where those who seek the darkness need look no further. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. And now, without further ado... From the darkest reaches of the cosmos and the furthest extremities of the human mind. From the great Howard Phillips Lovecraft, I give you part one of The Shadow Out of Time. Chapter One After 22 years of nightmare and terror, Saved only by a desperate conviction of the mythical source of certain impressions, I am unwilling to vouch for the truth of that which I think I found in Western Australia on the night of 1718, July 1935. There is reason to hope that my experience was wholly or partly a hallucination, for which indeed abundant causes existed. And yet, its realism was so hideous that I sometimes find hope impossible. If the things did happen, then man must be prepared to accept notions of the cosmos and of his own place in the seething vortex of time, whose merest mention is paralyzing. He must, too, be placed on guard against a specific lurking peril, which, though it will never engulf the whole race, may impose monstrous and unguessable horrors upon certain venturesome members of it. It is for this latter reason that I urge, with all the force of my being, final abandonment of all the attempts at unearthing those fragments of unknown primordial masonry which my expedition set out to investigate. Assuming that I was sane and awake, my experience on that night was such as has befallen no man before. It was, moreover, a frightful confirmation of all I had sought to dismiss as myth and dream. Mercifully, there is no proof, for in my fright I lost the awesome object which would, if real and brought out of that noxious abyss, have formed irrefutable evidence. When I came upon the horror, I was alone, and I have up to now told no one about it. I could not stop the others from digging in its direction, 
but chance and the shifting sand have so far saved them from finding it. Now, I must formulate some definite statement, not only for the sake of my own mental balance, but to warn such others as may read it seriously. These pages, much news earlier parts will be familiar to close readers of the general and scientific press, are written in the cabin of the ship that is bringing me home. I shall give them to my son, Professor Wingate Peasley of Miskatonic University, the only member of my family who stuck to me after my queer amnesia of long ago, and the man best informed on the inner facts of my case. Of all living persons, he is least likely to ridicule what I shall tell of that fateful night. I did not enlighten him orally before sailing, because I think he had better have the revelation in written form. Reading and rereading at leisure will leave with him a more convincing picture that my confused tongue could hope to convey. He can do anything that he thinks best with this account, showing it with suitable comment in any quarters where it will be likely to accomplish good. It is for the sake of such readers as are unfamiliar with the earlier phases of my case that I am prefacing the revelation itself with a fairly ample summary of its background. My name is Nathaniel Wingate Peasley, and those who recall the newspaper tales of a generation back, or the letters and articles in psychological journals six or seven years ago, will know who and what I am. The press was filled with the details of my strange amnesia in 1908 to 1913, and much was made of the traditions of horror, madness, and witchcraft which lurked behind the ancient Massachusetts town then and now, forming my place of residence. Yet I would have it known that there is nothing whatever of the mad or sinister in my heredity and early life. This is a highly important fact in view of the shadow which fell so suddenly upon me from outside sources. It may be that centuries of dark brooding had given to crumbling, whisper-haunted Arkham a peculiar vulnerability as regards such shadows, though even this seems doubtful in light of those other cases which I later came to study. But the chief point is that my own ancestry and background are altogether normal. What came came from somewhere else, where I even now hesitate to assert in plain words. I am the son of Jonathan and Hannah Wingate Paisley, both of wholesome old Haverhill stock. I was born and reared in Haverhill, at the old homestead in Boardman Street near Golden Hill, and did not go to Arkham till I entered Miskatonic University as instructor of political economy in 1895. For thirteen years more, my life ran smoothly and happily. I married Alice Kizar of Haverhill in 1896, and my three children, Robert, Wingate and Hannah were born in 1898, 1900, and 1903, respectively. In 1898, I became an associate professor, and in 1902, a full professor. At no time had I the least interest in either occultism or abnormal psychology. It was on Thursday, May 14th, 1908, that the queer amnesia came. The thing was quite sudden. 
though later I realized that certain brief, glimmering visions of several hours previous, chaotic visions, which disturbed me greatly because they were so unprecedented, must have formed premonitory symptoms. My head was aching, and I had a singular feeling altogether new to me, that someone else was trying to get possession of my thoughts. The collapse occurred about 10.20 a.m., while I was conducting a class in Political Economy 6, History and Present Tendencies of Economics, for juniors and a few sophomores. I began to see strange shapes before my eyes, and to feel that I was in a grotesque room other than the classroom. My thoughts and speech wandered from my subject, and the students saw that something was gravely amiss. Then I slumped down, unconscious in my chair, in a stupor from which no one could arouse me. Nor did my rightful faculties again look out upon the daylight of our normal world for five years, four months, and thirteen days. It is, of course, from others that I have learned what followed. I showed no sign of consciousness for sixteen and a half hours, though removed to my home at 27 Crane Street, and given the best of medical attention... At 3 a.m. May, my eyes opened and began to speak, and my family were thoroughly frightened by the trend of my expression and language. It was clear that I had no remembrance of my identity and my past, though for some reason seemed anxious to conceal his lack of knowledge. My eyes glazed strangely at the persons around me, and the flexions of my facial muscles were altogether unfamiliar. Even my speech seemed awkward and foreign. I used my vocal organs clumsily and gropingly, and my diction had a curiously stilted quality, as if I had laboriously learned the English language from books. The pronunciation was barbarously alien, whilst the idiom seemed to include both scraps of curious archaism and expressions of a wholly incomprehensible cast. Of the latter, one in particular was very potently even terrifyingly recalled by the youngest of the physicians twenty years afterward. For, at that late period, such a phrase began to have an actual currency, first in England and then in the United States, and though of much complexity and indisputable newness, it reproduced in every least particular the mystifying words of the strange Arkham patient of 1908. Physical strength returned at once, although I required an odd amount of re-education in the use of my hands, legs, and bodily apparatus in general. Because of this and other handicaps inherent in the mnemonic lapse, I was for some time kept under strict medical care. When I saw that my attempts to conceal the lapse had failed, I admitted it openly and became eager for information of all sorts. Indeed, it seemed to the doctors that I lost interest in my proper personality as soon as I found the case of amnesia accepted as a natural thing. They noticed that my chief efforts were to master certain points in history, science, art, language, and folklore, some of them tremendously obtruse and some childishly simple, which remained very oddly, in many cases, outside my consciousness. At the same time, they noticed that I had an inexplicable command of many almost unknown sorts of knowledge, a command which I seemed to wish to hide rather than display. 
I would inadvertently refer with casual assurance to specific events and dim ages outside the range of accepted history, passing off such references as a jest when I saw the surprise they created. And I had a way of speaking of the future which two or three times caused actual fright. These uncanny flashes soon ceased to appear, though some observers laid their vanishment more to the certain furtive caution on my part than to any waning of the strange knowledge behind them. Indeed, I seemed anonymously avid to absorb the speech, customs, and perspectives of the age around me, as if I were a studious traveler from a far, foreign land. As soon as permitted, I haunted the college library at all hours, and shortly began to arrange for those odd travels and special courses at American and European universities, which evoked so much comment during the next few years. I did not at any time suffer from a lack of learned contacts, for my case had a mild celebrity among the psychologists of the period. I was lectured upon as a typical example of secondary personality, even though I seemed to puzzle the lectures now and then with some bizarre symptoms of some queer trace of carefully veiled mockery. Of real friendliness, however, I encountered little. Something in my aspect and speech seemed to excite vague fears and aversions in everyone I met, as if I were a being infinitely removed from all that is normal and healthful. This idea of a black hidden horror connected with incalculable gulfs of some sort of distance was oddly widespread and persistent. My own family formed no exception. From the moment of my strange waking, my wife had regarded me with extreme horror and loathing, vowing that I was some utter alien usurping the body of her husband. In 1910, she obtained a legal divorce, nor would she ever consent to see me even after my return to normality in 1913. These feelings were shared by my elder son and my small daughter, neither of whom I have ever seen since. Only my second son, Wingate, seemed able to conquer the terror and repulsion which my change aroused. He indeed felt that I was a stranger, but though only eight years old, held fast to a faith that my proper self would return. When it did return, he sought me out, and the courts gave me his custody. In succeeding years, he helped me with the studies to which I was driven. And today, at thirty-five... He is a professor of psychology at Miskatonic. I do not wonder at the horror caused, for certainly the mind, voice, and facial expression of the being that awakened on May 15, 1908, were not those of Nathaniel Wingate Peasley. I will not attempt to tell much of my life from 1908 to 1913, since readers may glean the outward essentials as I largely had to do from files of old newspapers and scientific journals. I was given charge of my funds and spent them slowly, and on the whole wisely, in travel and in study at various centers of learning. My travels, however, were singular in the extreme, involving long visits to remote and desolate places. In 1909 I spent a month in the Himalayas, and in 1911 roused much attention to a camel trip into the unknown deserts of Arabia. What happened on those journeys I have never been able to learn. During the summer of 1912, I chartered a ship and sailed in the Arctic, north of Spitsbergen, afterward showing signs of disappointment. Later in that year, I spent weeks 
Alone, beyond the limits of previous or subsequent exploration, in the vast limestone cavern system of western Virginia, black labyrinths so complex that no tracing of my steps could even be considered. My sojourns at the universities were marked by abnormally rapid assimilation, as if the secondary personality had an intelligence enormously superior to my own. I have found also that my rate of reading in solitary study was phenomenal. I could master every detail of a book merely by glancing over it as fast as I could turn the leaves, while my skill at interpreting complex figures in an instant was veritably awesome. At times, there appeared almost ugly reports of my powers to influence the thoughts and acts of others, though I seemed to have taken care to minimize displays of this faculty. Other ugly reports concerned my intimacy with leaders of occultist groups, and scholars suspected of connection with nameless bands of aberrant Elder World hierophants. These rumors, though never proved at the time, were doubtless stimulated by the known tenor of some of my reading, for the consultation of rare books at libraries cannot be effected secretly. There is tangible proof in the form of marginal notes that I went minutely through such things as the Comte de Erlet's Cultis de Goulas, Ludwig Prim's De Vermes Mysterious, the Unausbrechlichen Kolten of von Junst, the surviving fragments of the puzzling Book of Ebon, and the dreaded Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred. Then, too, it is undeniable that a fresh and evil wave of underground cult activity sent in about the time of my odd mutation... In the summer of 1913, I began to display signs of ennui and flagging interest, and a hint to various associates that a change might soon be expected in me. I spoke of returning memories of my earlier life, though most auditors judged me insincere, since all the recollections I gave were casual, and such as might have been learned from old private papers. About the middle of August, I returned to Arkham and reopened my long-closed house in Crane Street. Here, I installed a mechanism of the most curious aspect, constructed piecemeal by different makers of scientific apparatus in Europe and America, and guarded carefully from the sight of anyone intelligent enough to analyze it. Those who did see it, a workman, a servant, and the new housekeeper say that it was a queer mixture of rods, wheels, and mirrors, though only about two feet tall, one foot wide, and one foot thick. The central mirror was circular and convex. All this is borne out by such makers of parts as can be located. On the evening of Friday, September 26th, I dismissed the housekeeper and the maid until noon of the next day. Lights burned in the house till late, and a lean, dark, curiously foreign-looking man called in an automobile. It was about 1 a.m. that the lights were last seen. At 2.15 a.m., a policeman observed the place in darkness, with the stranger's motor still at the curb. By 4 o'clock, the motor was certainly gone. It was at 6 o'clock that a hesitant foreign voice on the telephone asked Dr. Wilson to call at my house and bring me out of a peculiar faint. This call, a long-distance one, was later traced to a public booth in the North Station in Boston, but no sign of the lean foreigner was ever unearthed. When the doctor reached my house, he found me unconscious in the sitting room, in an easy chair with a table drawn up before it. 
on the polished top were scratches showing where some heavy object had rested. The queer machine was gone, nor was anything afterward heard of it. Undoubtedly, the dark, lean foreigner had taken it away. In the library grate were abundant ashes, evidently left from the burning of the every remaining scrap of paper on which I had written since the advent of the amnesia. Dr. Wilson found me breathing very peculiar, but after a hypodermic injection it became more regular. At 11.15 a.m. on September 27th, I stirred vigorously, and my hitherto mask-like face began to show signs of expression. Dr. Wilson remarked that the expression was not that of my secondary personality, but seemed much like that of my normal self. About 11.30 I muttered some very curious syllables. Syllables which seemed unrelated to any human speech. I appeared as well to struggle against something. Then, just after noon, the housekeeper and the maid having meanwhile returned, I began to mutter in English. Of the orthodox economists of that period, Yevans typifies the prevailing trend towards scientific correlation. His attempts to link the commercial cycle of prosperity and depression with the physical cycle of the solar spots forms perhaps the apex of... And Nathaniel Wingate Peasley had come back. A spirit in whose time scale it was still Thursday morning in 1908, with the economics class gazing up at the battered desk on the platform. This episode of Horror Hill is proudly brought to you by BetterHelp. Well, I hope everybody had a happy Thanksgiving. Staying home. Alone. Maybe doing a Zoom call. But it's great, right? Because it's all about family. Family that's not with you. Because it's 2020. And everything that used to be happy is just sad now. Yeah. I really wanted to be jokey with this ad read, but I just can't do it this week. This wasn't the first Thanksgiving that I wasn't able to see family, but this one... It just made me feel so isolated and tired and made so much worse because it's not just me. It's everywhere, and a lot of people feel worse than I do, and it's all just bouncing off the walls and reverberating in this big echo chamber of bad news. And that's why I'm genuinely glad that I have better help, because I need somebody to talk to where it is their job to listen. Because I feel guilty about unloading all this shit on friends and family and maybe making it a little bit worse for them, just because it makes me feel better. And that aspect of it was just so much more liberating than I ever thought it would be. All it takes is a quick online assessment to match you with the right professional and you will be talking this stuff out in under 48 hours. Now keep in mind, BetterHelp is not a crisis line. There are crisis lines for that. And it's definitely not self-help. You have yourself for that. BetterHelp is professional counseling done securely online. Not all therapists are created equal, in the same way that not all problems are created equal. And there's a lot of places in this country where the right person for you is just not close enough. And BetterHelp is available to clients worldwide. 
You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, if you're not real comfortable video chatting, like me, it makes me very self-conscious, you can just do it over the phone, which helps a lot of people open up more, including me. Don't like the counselor? Get someone else. Changing therapists is easy and free, and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit BetterHelp.com Hill. That's Better H-E-L-P. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So give it a try and use the special offer for Horror Hill listeners to get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com Hill. Again, that's BetterHelp.com Hill. Thank you for your support of this program and of the sponsors that make it possible. Chapter 2 My reabsorption into normal life was a painful and difficult process. The loss of over five years create more complications than can be imagined, and in my case, there were countless matters to be adjusted. What I heard of my actions since 1908 astonished and disturbed me, but I tried to view the matter as philosophically as I could. At last, regaining custody of my second son, Wingate, I settled down with him in the Crane Street house and endeavored to resume my teaching, my old professorship having been kindly offered me by the college. I began work with the February 1914 term and kept at it just a year. By that time, I realized how badly my experience had shaken me. Though perfectly sane, I hoped, and with no flaw in my original personality, I had not the nervous energy of the old days. Vague dreams and queer ideas continually haunted me, and when the outbreak of the World War turned my mind to history, I found myself thinking of periods and events in the oddest possible fashion. My conception of time... My ability to distinguish between consecutiveness and simultaneousness seemed subtly disordered so that I formed chimerical notions about living in one age and casting one's mind all over eternity for knowledge of past and future ages. The war gave me strange impressions of remembering some of its far-off consequences, as if I knew how it was coming out and could look back upon it in the light of future information. All such quasi-memories were attended with much pain, and with a feeling that some artificial psychological barrier was set against them. When I diffidently hinted to others about my impressions, I met with varied responses. Some persons looked uncomfortably at me, but men in the mathematics department spoke of new developments in those theories of relativity, then discussed only in learned circles, which were later to become so famous. Dr. Albert Einstein, they said, was rapidly reducing time to the status of a mere dimension. But the dreams and disturbed feelings gained on me, so that I had to drop my regular work in 1915. Certainly the impressions were taking an annoying shape, giving me the persistent notion that my amnesia had formed some unholy sort of exchange, that the secondary personality had indeed suffered displacement. 
Thus, I was driven to vague and frightful speculations concerning the whereabouts of my true self during the years that another had held my body, the curious knowledge and strange conduct of my body's late tenant troubled me more and more as I learned further details from persons, papers, and magazines. Queerness that had baffled others seemed to harmonize terribly with some background of black knowledge which festered in the chasms of my subconscious. I began to search feverishly for every scrap of information bearing on the studies and travels of that other one during the dark years. All of my troubles were as semi-abstract as this. There were the dreams, and they seemed to grow in vividness and concreteness. Knowing how most would regard them, I seldom mentioned them to anyone but my son or certain trusted psychologists. But, eventually, I commenced a scientific study of other cases in order to see how typical or non-typical such visions might be among amnesia victims. My results... Aided by psychologists, historians, anthropologists, and mental specialists of wide experience, and by a study that included all records of split personality from the days of demonic possession legends to the medically realistic present, that first bothered me more than they consoled me. I soon found that my dreams had, indeed, no counterpart in the overwhelming bulk of true amnesia cases. There remained, however... A tiny residue of accounts, which for years baffled and shocked me with their parallelism to my own experience. Some of them were bits of ancient folklore, others were case histories in the annals of medicine, one or two were anecdotes obscurely buried in standard histories. It thus appeared that while my special kind of affliction was prodigiously rare, instances of it had occurred at long intervals ever since the beginning of men's annals. Some centuries might contain one, two, or three cases, others none, or at least none whose record survived. The essence was always the same. A person of keen thoughtfulness seized a strange secondary life, and leading for a greater or lesser period an utterly alien existence, typified at first by vocal and bodily awkwardness, and later by a wholesale acquisition of scientific historic, artistic, and anthropologic knowledge. An acquisition carried on with a feverish zest and with a wholly abnormal absorptive power. Then, a sudden return of rightful consciousness, intermittently plagued ever after with vague, unplaceable dreams, suggesting fragments of some hideous memory, elaborately blotted out. And the close resemblance of those nightmares to my own, even in some of the smallest particulars, left no doubt in my mind of their significantly typical nature. One or two of the cases had an added ring of faint, blasphemous familiarity, as if I had heard them before, through some cosmic channel, too morbid and frightful to contemplate. In three instances, there was specific mention of such an unknown machine as had been in my house before the second change. Another thing that worried me during my investigation was that the somewhat greater frequency of cases where a brief, elusive glimpse of the typical nightmares were afforded to persons not visited by well-defined amnesia. These persons were largely of mediocre mind or less, some so primitive that they could scarcely be thought of as vehicles for abnormal scholarship and preternatural mental acquisitions. For a second, they would be fired with alien force, then a backward lapse 
and a thin, swift-fading memory of unhuman horrors. There had been at least three such cases during the past half-century, one only fifteen years before. Had something been groping blindly through time from some unsuspected abyss in nature? Were these faint cases monstrous, sinister experiments of a kind and authorship utterly beyond sane belief? Such were a few of the foreless speculations of my weaker hours, fancies abetted by myths which my studies uncovered, for I could not doubt but that certain persistent legend of immemorial antiquity, apparently unknown to the victims and physicians connected with recent amnesia cases, formed a striking and awesome elaboration of memory lapses such as mine. Of the nature of the dreams and impressions which were growing so clamorous, I still almost fear to speak. They seemed to savor of madness, and at times I believed I was indeed going mad. Was there a special type of delusion afflicting those who had suffered lapses of memory? Conceivably, the efforts of the subconscious mind to fill up a perplexing blank with pseudo-memories might give rise to strange, imaginative vagaries. This, indeed, though an alternative folklore theory finally seemed to me more plausible, was the belief of many of the alienists who helped me in my research for parallel cases, and who shared my puzzlement at the exact resemblance sometimes discovered. They did not call the condition true insanity, but classed it rather among neurotic disorders. My course in trying to track down and analyze it, instead of vainly seeking to dismiss or forget it, they heartily endorsed as correct according to the best psychological principles. I especially valued the advice of such physicians as had studied me during my possession by the other personality. My first disturbances were not visual at all, but concerned the more abstract matters which I have mentioned. There was, too, a feeling of profound and inexplicable horror concerning myself. I developed a queer fear of seeing my own form, as if my eyes would find it something utterly alien and inconceivably aberrant. When I did glance down and behold the familiar human shape in quiet gray or blue clothing, I always felt a curious relief, though in order to gain this relief I had to conquer an infinite dread. I shunned the mirrors as much as possible, and was always shaved at the barber's. It was a long time before I correlated any of these disappointed feelings with the fleeting visual impressions which began to develop. The first such correlation had to do with the odd sensation of an external, artificial restraint on my memory. I felt that the snatches of sight I experienced had a profound and terrible meaning, and a frightful connection with myself, but that some purposeful influence held me from grasping that meaning and the connection. Then came that queerness about the element of time, and with it, desperate efforts to place the fragmentary dream glimpses in the chronological and spatial pattern. The glimpses themselves were at first merely strange rather than horrible. I would seem to be in an enormous, vaulted chamber, whose lofty stoneworks were well nigh lost in the shadows overhead. In whatever time or place the scene might be, the principle of the arch was known as fully and used as extensively as by the Romans. There were colossal round windows and high arch doors and pedestals or tables 
each as tall as the height of an ordinary room. Vast shelves of dark wood lined the walls, holding what seemed to be volumes of immense size, with strange hieroglyphs on their backs. The exposed stonework held curious carvings, always in curvilinear mathematical designs, and there were chiseled inscriptions in the same characters that the huge books bore. The dark granite masonry was of a monstrous, megalithic type, with lines of convex-topped blocks fitting the concave bottom courses which rested upon them. There were no chairs, but the tops of the vast pedestals were littered with books, papers, and what seemed to be writing materials. Oddly figured jars of a purplish metal and rods with stained tips. Tall as the pedestals were, I seemed at times to be able to view them from above. On some of them were great globes of luminous crystals serving as lamps, and inexplicable machines formed of vitreous tubes and metal rods. The windows were glazed and latticed with stout-looking bars, though I dared not approach and peer out them. I could see from where I was the waving tops of singular, fern-like growths. The floor was of massive octagonal flagstones, while rugs and hangings were entirely lacking. Later, I had visions of sweeping through cyclopean corridors of stone, and up and down gigantic inclined planes of the same monstrous masonry. There were no stairs anywhere, nor was any passageway less than thirty feet wide. Some of the structures through which I floated must have towered in the sky for thousands of feet. There were multiple levels of black vaults below, and never-opened trap doors, sealed down with metal bands and holding dim suggestions of some special peril. I seemed to be a prisoner, and horror hung broodingly over everything I saw. I felt that the mocking, curvilinear hieroglyphs on the walls would blast my soul with their message were I not guarded by a merciful ignorance. Still, later, my dreams included vistas from the great round windows and from the titanic flat roof, with its curious gardens, wide barren area, and high, scalloped parapet of stone, to which the topmost of the inclined plains led. There were almost endless leagues of giant buildings, each in its garden, and ranged along paved roads fully two hundred feet wide. They differed greatly in aspect, but few were less than five hundred feet square or a thousand feet high. Many seemed so limitless that they must have had a frontage of several thousand feet, while some shot up to mountainous altitudes in the grey, steamy heavens. They seemed to be mainly of stone or concrete, and most of them embodied the oddly curvilinear type of masonry noticeable in the building that held me. Roofs were flat and garden-covered, and tended to have scalloped parapets. Sometimes there were terraces and higher levels and wide, cleared spaces amidst the gardens. The great roads held hints of motion, but in the earlier visions, I could not resolve this impression into details. In certain places I beheld enormous, dark, cylindrical towers which climbed far above any of the other structures. They appeared to be of a totally unique nature and shewed signs of prodigious age and dilapidation. They were built of a bizarre type of square-cut basalt masonry and tapered slightly toward their rounded tops. 
Nowhere in any of them could the least traces of windows or other apertures save huge doors be found. I noticed also some lower buildings, all crumbling with a weathering of aeons, which resembled these dark, cylindrical towers in basic architecture. Around all these aberrant piles of square-cut masonry, there hovered an inexplicable aura of menace and concentrated fear, like that bred by the sealed trapdoors. The omnipresent gardens were almost terrifying in their strangeness, with bizarre and unfamiliar forms of vegetation nodding over broad paths lined with curious carven monoliths. Abnormally vast fern-like growths predominated, some green and some of a ghastly fungoid pallor. Among them rose great spectral things resembling calamites, whose bamboo-like trunks towered to fabulous heights. Then there were tufted forms like fabulous cycads, and grotesque dark green shrubs and trees of coniferous aspect. Flowers were small, colorless, and unrecognizable, blooming in geometrical beds and at large among the greenery. In a few of the terrace and rooftop gardens were larger and more blossoms of most offensive contours, and seeming to suggest artificial breeding. Fungi of inconceivable size, outlines, and colors speckled the scene in patterns beseeking some unknown but well-established horticultural tradition. In the larger gardens on the ground, there seemed to be some attempt to preserve the irregularities of nature, but on the roofs there was more selectiveness and more evidence of the topiary art. The skies were almost always moist and cloudy, and sometimes I would seem to witness tremendous rains. Once in a while, though, there would be glimpses of the sun, which looked abnormally large, and of the moon, whose markings held a touch of difference from the normal that I could never quite fathom. When, very rarely, the night sky was clear to any extent, I beheld constellations which were nearly beyond recognition. Known outlines were sometimes approximated, but seldom duplicated, and from the positions of the few groups I could recognize, I felt I must be in the Earth's southern hemisphere, near the Tropic of Capricorn. The far horizon was always steamy and indistinct, but I could see that great jungles of unknown tree ferns, calamites, lepidodendra, and sigillaria lay outside the city, their fantastic frondage waving mockingly in the shifting vapors. Now and then there would be suggestions of motion in the sky, but these my early visions never resolved. By the autumn of 1914 I began to have infrequent dreams of strange floatings over the city and through the regions around it. I saw interminable roads through forests of fearsome growths with mottled, fluted, and banded trunks, and past other cities as strange as the one which persistently haunted me. I saw monstrous constructions of black or iridescent tone in glades and clearings where perpetual twilight reigned and traversed long causeways over swamps so dark that I could tell but little of their moist, towering vegetation. Once I saw an area of countless miles strewn with age-blasted basaltic ruins whose architecture had been like that of the few windowless, round-topped towers in the haunting city. And once, I saw the sea, 
a boundless, steamy expanse. Beyond the colossal stone piers of an enormous town of domes and arches, great, shapeless suggestions of shadow moved over it, and here and there, its surface was vexed with anomalous spoutings. This episode of Horror Hill is proudly brought to you by HelloFresh. How about those pros? Damn. Take it easy, Howard. Reading Lovecraft is the narration equivalent of riding bareback or cooking on a wood stove. It just makes other narrations feel easy. It also makes a man work up an appetite, especially for the flesh of oceanic fauna with copper-based blood. Now, I've always had a taste for the higher invertebrates, ever since I was a kid. Deep-fried mollusks with a splash of lemon juice dipped in marinara was essentially my PB&J growing up. Hmm, umami. One of the advantages of growing up in Delaware, a small town in southern Pennsylvania. Or in northern Maryland, you know, I can't really recall. The point is, if I had a craving for those succulent cephalopods, I needed only pluck them from the tree. Not the case out here in the Rocky Mountains. Even the oysters seem a bit... Um... I don't know. Off? Huh. Which is why when I get that hankering for those articulated tentacles, I thank the great old ones that I have HelloFresh. What is HelloFresh? Only pre-measured ingredients, mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door, America's number one meal kit, any of this ringing a bell... HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. You can cut out the stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner to the table in about 30 minutes. With convenient, no-contact delivery to your doorstep, feeding the whole family has never been easier. Over 90% of HelloFresh ingredients are sourced directly from growers to ensure peak flavor and ripeness. There's something everyone will enjoy including 20-minute meals, low-calorie vegetarian, kid-approved recipes, and more. By skipping the grocery store and using HelloFresh, you're reducing your food waste by at least 25%. 25% is also how much lower HelloFresh's carbon footprint is than store-bought grocery-made meals, according to the University of Michigan, a dead city of sleeping gods and eldritch horrors at the bottom of a great lake. HelloFresh allows you to keep your fridge stocked by adding extra meals or additional proteins, quick meals like breakfast on the go, or their 10-minute lunches, and even desserts to satisfy that sweet tooth. Now, it's no secret, I like my squid, and I'm definitely not above the occasional octopus or cuttlefish. But restaurants don't always get it right, and cooking calamari at home has always kind of intimidated me. If you've ever done it, you'll know the margin for error is very small. But... After practice with HelloFresh's pan-seared calamari over bulgur and chorizo hash with parsley gremolata, I feel like an absolute pro. There's something genuinely empowering and liberating about mastering the preparation of one of your favorite foods, especially if it's something you've tried and failed at in the past. But HelloFresh just makes it so damn easy. And those beautifully printed recipe cards? You have those forever! There are so many useful tips on those, I have become such a better chef. And because cooking is the language of love, I'm able to better serve the people I care about, because that is what the holidays are really all about. 
Ia Ia Cthulhu Fertagen. So, get your nose out of whatever forbidden tome it's stuck in, and go to HelloFresh.com slash 90Hill, and use the code 90Hill to get $90 off, including free shipping. One more time, that's HelloFresh.com slash 90HILL. 90Hill. Thank you for your support of this program, and of the sponsors that make it possible. Chapter 3 Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else. So finding the perfect place is easier than ever. And so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom, and you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together, but you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them, because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the Internet, so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com, the place to find a pet-friendly place. As I have said, it was not immediately that these wild visions begin to hold their terrifying quality. Certainly, many persons have dreamed intrinsically stranger things. Things compounded of unrelated scraps of daily life, pictures and reading, and arranged in fantastically novel forms by the unchecked caprices of sleep. For some time I accepted the vision as natural, even though I had never before been an extravagant dreamer. Many of the vague anomalies, I argued, must have come from trivial sources too numerous to track down, while others seemed to reflect a common textbook knowledge of the plants and other conditions of the primitive world of a hundred and fifty million years ago, the world of the Permian, or Triassic Age. In the course of some months, however, the element of terror did figure with accumulating force. This was when the dreams began so unfailingly to have the aspect of memories, and when my mind began to link them with my growing abstract disturbances, the feeling of mnemonic restraint, the curious impressions regarding time, and sense of a loathsome exchange with my secondary personality 
of 1908 through 13, and, considerably later, the inexplicable loathing of my own person. As certain definite details began to enter the dreams, their horror increased a thousandfold, until by October 1915 I felt I must do something. It was then that I began an intensive study of other cases of amnesia and visions, feeling that I might thereby objectivize my trouble and shake clear of its emotional grip. However, as before mentioned, the result was at first almost exactly opposite. It disturbed me vastly to find that my dreams had been so closely duplicated, especially since some of the accounts were too early to admit of any geological knowledge, and therefore of any idea of primitive landscapes on the subject's part. What is more, many of these accounts supplied very horrible details and explanations in connection with the visions of great buildings and jungle gardens, and other things. The actual sights and vague impressions were bad enough, but what was hinted or asserted by some of the other dreamers savored of madness and blasphemy. Worst of all, my own pseudo-memory was aroused to milder dreams and hints of coming revelations. And yet, most doctors deemed my course, on the whole, an advisable one. I studied psychology systematically, and under the prevailing stimulus, my son Wingate did the same, his studies leading eventually to his present professorship. In 1917 and 18, I took special courses at Miskatonic, Meanwhile, my examination of medical, historical, and anthropological records became indefatigable, involving travels to distant libraries, and finally including even a reading of the hideous books of forbidden elder lore, in which my secondary personality had been so disturbingly interested. Some of the latter were the actual copies I had consulted in my altered state and I was greatly disturbed by certain marginal notations and ostensible corrections of the hideous text in a script and idiom which somehow seemed oddly unhuman. These markings were mostly in the respective languages of the various books, all of which the writer seemed to know with equal, though obviously academic, facility. One note, appended to von Jun's Unausprechlichen Kulten, however, was alarmingly otherwise. It consisted of certain curvilinear hieroglyphs in the same ink as that of the German corrections, but following no recognized human pattern. And these hieroglyphs were closely and unmistakably alien to the characters constantly met with in my dreams. Characters whose meaning I would sometimes momentarily fancy I knew, or was just on the brink of recalling. To complete my black confusion, my librarians assured me that, in view of previous examinations and records of consultation of the volumes in question, all of these notations must have been made by myself in my secondary state. This, despite the fact that I was and still am ignorant of three of the languages involved. Piecing together the scattered records, ancient and modern, anthropological and medical, I found a fairly consistent mixture of myth and hallucination whose scope and wildness left me utterly dazed. Only one thing consoled me, the fact that the myths were of such early existence. What lost knowledge could have brought pictures of the Paleozoic or Mesozoic landscapes into these primitive fables? I could not even guess. 
but the pictures had been there. Thus, a basis existed for the formation of a fixed type of delusion. Cases of amnesia no doubt created the general myth pattern, but afterward the fanciful accreations of the myths must have reacted on amnesia sufferers and colored their pseudo-memories. I myself had read and heard all the early tales during my memory lapse. My quest had amply proved that. Was it not natural then for my subsequent dreams and emotional impressions to become colored and molded by what my memory subtly held over from my secondary state? A few of the myths had significant connections with other cloudy legends of the pre-human world, especially those Hindu tales involving stupefying gulfs of time and forming part of the lore of modern theosophists. Primal myth and modern delusion joined in their assumption that mankind is only one, perhaps the least, of the highly evolved and dominant races of this planet's long and largely unknown career. Things of inconceivable shape, they implied, had reared towers to the sky and delved into every secret of nature before the first amphibian forebear of man had crawled out of the hot sea 300 million years ago. Some had come down from the stars, a few were as old as the cosmos itself. Others had arisen swiftly from terrene germs as far behind the first germs of our life cycle as those germs are behind ourselves. Spans of thousands of millions of years and linkages to other galaxies and universes were freely spoken of. Indeed, there was no such thing as time in its humanly accepted sense. But most of the tales and impressions concerned a relatively late race of a queer and intricate shape resembling no life form known to science, which had lived till only fifty million years before the advent of man. This, they indicated, was the greatest race of all, because it alone had conquered the secret of time. It had learned all things that ever were known or ever would be known on the earth, through the power of its keener minds to project themselves into the past and future, even through gulfs of millions of years, and study the lore of every age. From the accomplishments of this race arose all legends of prophets, including those in human mythology. In its vast libraries were volumes of texts and pictures holding the whole of Earth's annals, histories and descriptions of every species that had ever been, or that ever would be, with full records of their arts, their achievements, their languages, and their psychologies. With this aeon-embracing knowledge, the great race chose from every era and life form such thoughts arts, and processes as might suit its own nature and situation. Knowledge of the past, secured through a kind of mind-casting outside the recognized senses, was harder to glean than knowledge of the future. In the latter case, the course was easier and more material. With suitable mechanical aid, a mind would project itself forward in time, feeling its dim, extrasensory way, till it approached the desired period. Then, after preliminary trials, it would seize on the best discoverable representative of the highest of that period's life forms. It would enter the organism's brain and set up therein its own vibrations, while the displaced mind would strike back to the period of the displacer, remaining in the latter's body 
till a reverse process was set up. The projected mind and the body of the organism of the future would then pose as a member of the race whose outward form it wore, learning as quickly as possible all that could be learned of the chosen age and its massed information and techniques. Meanwhile, the displaced mind, thrown back to the displacer's age and body, would be carefully guarded. It would be kept from harming the body it occupied, and would be drained of all its knowledge by trained questioners. Often it could be questioned in its own language, when previous quests into the future had brought back records of that language. If the mind came from a body whose language the great race could not physically reproduce, clever machines would be made, on which the alien speech could be played as on a musical instrument. The great race's members were immense rugose cones, ten feet high, and with head and other organs attached to foot-thick, distensible limbs spreading from the apexes. They spoke by the clicking or scraping of huge paws or claws attached to the end of two of their forelimbs, and walked by the expansion and contraction of a viscous lair attached to their vast ten-foot bases. When the captive mind's amazement and resentment had worn off, and when, assuming that it came from a body vastly different from the great races, it had lost its horror at its unfamiliar temporary form, it was permitted to study its new environment and experience a wonder and wisdom approximating that of its displacer. With suitable precautions, and in exchange for suitable services, it was allowed to rove all over the habitable world, in Titan airships, or on huge boat-like atomic-engined vehicles, which traversed the great roads, and to delve freely into the libraries containing the records of the planet's past and future. This reconciled many captive minds to their lot, since none were other than keen, and to such minds the unveiling of hidden mysteries of earth-closed chapters of inconceivable pasts and dizzying vortices of future time, which include the years ahead of their own natural ages forms always, despite the abysmal horrors often unveiled, the supreme experience of life. Now and then, certain captives were permitted to meet other captive minds seized from the future, to exchange thoughts with consciousnesses living a hundred, or a thousand, or a million years before or after their own ages, and all were urged to write copiously in their own languages, of themselves and their respective periods, such documents to be filed in great central archives. It may be added that there was one special type of captive, whose privileges were far greater than those of the majority. These were the dying, permanent exiles, whose bodies in the future had been seized by keen-minded members of the great race, who, faced with death, sought to escape mental extinction. Such melancholy exiles were not as common as might be expected, since the longevity of the great race lessened its love of life, especially among those superior minds capable of projection, from cases of the permanent projection of elder minds arose many of those lasting changes of personality noticed in later history, including mankind's. As for the ordinary cases of exploration, when the displacing mind had learned what it wished in the future, it would build an apparatus like that which had started its flight and reverse the process of projection. Once more, it would be in its own body, in its own age while the lately captive mind would return to that body of the future, 
to which it properly belonged. Only when one or the other of the bodies had died during the exchange was this restoration impossible. In such cases, of course, the exploring mind had, like those of the death escapers, to live out an alien-bodied life in the future, or else the captive mind, like the dying permanent exiles, had to end its days in the form and past age of the great race. This fate was least horrible when the captive mind was also of the great race, a not infrequent occurrence, since in all its periods that race was intensely concerned with its own future. The number of dying permanent exiles of the great race was very slight, largely because of the tremendous penalties attached to displacements of future great race minds by the moribund. Through projection, arrangements were made to inflict these penalties on the offending minds in their new future bodies, and sometimes forced re-exchanges were effected. Complex cases of the displacement of exploring or already captive minds by minds in various regions of the past had been known and carefully rectified. In every age since the discovery of mind projection, a minute but well-recognized element of the population consisted of great race minds from past ages, sojourning for a longer or shorter while. When a captive mind of alien origin was returned to its own body in the future, it was purged by an intricate mechanical hypnosis of all it had learned in the great race's age. This because of certain troublesome consequences inherent to the general carrying forward of knowledge in large quantities. The few existing instances of clear transmission had caused, and would cause at known future times, great disasters, and it was largely in consequence of two cases of this kind, said the old myths, that mankind had learned what it had concerning the great race. Of all things surviving physically and directly from the aeon-distant world, there remained only certain ruins of great stones in far places and under the sea, and parts of the text of the frightful narcotic manuscripts. Thus, the returning mind reached its own age with only the faintest and most fragmentary visions of what it had undergone since its seizure. All memories that could be eradicated were eradicated, so that in most cases, only a dream-shadowed blank stretched back to the time of the first exchange. Some minds recalled more than others, and the chance joining of memories had, at rare times, brought hints of the forbidden past to future ages. There probably never was a time when groups or cults did not secretly cherish certain of these hints. In the Necronomicon, the presence of such a cult among human beings was suggested, a cult that sometimes gave aid to minds voyaging down the aeons from the days of the great race, and... Meanwhile, the great race itself waxed well-nigh omniscient, and turned to the task of setting up exchanges with the minds of other planets, and of exploring their pasts and futures. It sought likewise to fathom the past years and origin of that black, aeon-dead orb in the far space whence its own mental heritage had come, for the mind of the great race was older than its bodily form." The beings of a dying elder world, wise with the ultimate secrets, had looked ahead for a new world and species wherein they might have long life, and had sent their minds en masse into that future race best adapted to house them, the cone-shaped beings that peopled our Earth a billion years ago. Thus, the great race came to be, while the myriad minds sent backward were left to die in the horror of strange shapes. Later, 
The race would again face death, yet would live through another forward migration of its best minds into the bodies of others who had a longer physical span ahead of them. Such was the background of intertwined legend and hallucination, when around 1920 I had my researches in coherent shape. I felt a slight lessening of the tension which their earlier stages had increased. After all, and in spite of the fancies prompted by blind emotions, were not most of my phenomenon readily explainable? Any chance might have turned my mind to dark studies during the amnesia, and then I read the forbidden legends and met the members of an ancient and ill-regarded cult. That, plainly, supplied the material for the dreams and disturbed feelings which came after the return of memory. As for the marginal notes in dream hieroglyphs and languages unknown to me, but laid at my door by librarians, I might easily have picked up a smattering of the tongues during my secondary state, while the hieroglyphs were doubtless coined by my fancy from descriptions in old legends, and afterward woven into my dreams. I tried to verify certain points through conversation with known cult leaders, but never succeeded in establishing the right connections. At times, the parallelism of so many cases and so many distant ages continued to worry me as it had at first, but on the other hand, I reflected that the exitant folklore was undoubtedly more universal in the past than in the present. Probably all the other victims whose cases were like mine had had a long and familiar knowledge of the tales I had learned, only when in my secondary state. When these victims had lost their memory, they had associated themselves with the creatures of their household myths, the fabulous invaders supposed to displace men's minds, and had thus embarked upon quests for knowledge, which they thought they could take back to a fancied, non-human past. Then, when their memory returned, they reversed the associative process and thought of themselves as the former captive minds instead of as the displacers. Hence, the dreams and pseudo-memories following the conventional myth pattern. Despite the seeming cumbersomeness of these explanations, they came finally to supersede all others in my mind, largely because of the greater weakness of any rival theory, and a substantial number of eminent psychologists and anthropologists gradually agreed with me. The more I reflected, the more convincing did my reasoning seem, till in the end I had an effective bulwark against the visions and impressions which still assailed me. Suppose I did see strange things at night. These were only what I had heard and read of. Suppose I did have odd loathings and perspectives and pseudo-memories. These, too, were only echoes of myths absorbed in my secondary state. Nothing that I might dream, nothing that I might feel could be of any actual significance. Fortified by this philosophy, I greatly improved in nervous equilibrium, even though the visions, rather than the abstract impressions, steadily became more frequent and more disturbingly detailed. In 1922, I felt able to undertake regular work again and put my newly gained knowledge to practical use by accepting an instructorship in psychology at the university. My old chair of political economy had long been adequately filled, besides which, methods of teaching economics had changed greatly since my heyday. My son was, at this time, just entering on the postgraduate studies leading to his recent professorship, and we worked together a great deal. Chapter 4 
I continued, however, to keep a careful record of the outer dreams which crowded upon me so thickly and vividly. Such a record, I argued, was of genuine value as a psychological document. The glimpses still seemed damnably like memories, though I fought off this impression with a goodly measure of success. In writing, I treated the phantasmata as things seen, but at all other times I brushed them aside, like any gossamer illusions of the night. I had never mentioned such matters in common conversation, though reports of them, filtering out as such things will, had aroused sundry rumors regarding my mental health. It is amusing to reflect that these rumors were confined wholly to laymen without a single champion among physicians or psychologists. Of my visions after 1914, I will here mention only a few, since fuller accounts and records are at the disposal of the serious student. It is evident that with time, the curious inhibition somewhat waned, for the scope of my visions vastly increased. They have never, though, become other than disjointed fragments, seemingly without clear motivation. Within the dreams, I seemed gradually to acquire a greater and greater freedom of wandering. I floated through many strange buildings of stone, going from one to the other along mammoth underground passages which seemed to form the common avenues of transit. Sometimes I encountered those gigantic sealed trap doors in the lowest level, around which such an aura of fear and forbiddenness clung. I saw tremendously tessellated pools and rooms of curious and inexplicable utensils of myriad sorts. Then, there were colossal caverns of intricate machinery, whose outlines and purpose were wholly strange to me, and whose sound manifested itself only after many years of dreaming. I may here remark that sight and sound are the only senses I have ever exercised in the visionary world. The real horror began in May of 1915, when I first saw the living things. This was before my studies had taught me what, in view of the myths and case histories, to expect. As mental barriers wore down, I beheld great masses of thin vapor in various parts of the building and in the streets below. These steadily grew more solid and distinct, till, at last, I could trace their monstrous outlines with uncomfortable ease. They seemed to be enormous iridescent cones, about ten feet high and ten feet wide at the base, and made up of some ridgy, scaly, semi-elastic matter. From their apexes projected four flexible cylindrical members, each a foot thick and of a ridgy substance like that of the cones themselves. The members were sometimes contracted almost to nothing, and sometimes extended to any distance up to about ten feet. Terminating two of them were enormous claws or nippers. At the end of the third were four red trumpet-like appendages. The fourth terminated in an irregular yellowish globe some two feet in diameter, and having three great dark eyes ranged along its central circumference. Surmounting this head were four slender gray stalks, bearing flower-like appendages, whilst from its nether side dangled eight greenish antennae or tentacles. The great base of the central cone was fringed with a rubbery gray substance which moved the whole entity through expansion and contraction. Their actions, though harmless, horrified me even more than their appearance. 
for it is not wholesome to watch monstrous objects doing what one had known only human beings to do. These objects moved intelligently about the great rooms, getting books from the shelves and taking them to the great tables or vice versa, and sometimes writing diligently with a peculiar rod gripped in the greenish head tentacles. The huge nippers were used in carrying books and in conversation speech consisting of a kind of clicking and scraping. The objects had no clothing, but wore satchels or knapsacks suspended from the top of the conical trunk. They commonly carried their head and its supporting member at the level of the cone top, although it was frequently raised or lowered. The other three great members tended to rest downward at the sides of the cone, contracted to about five feet each when not in use. From their rate of reading, writing, and operating their machines, those on the table seemed somehow connected with thought, I concluded that their intelligence was enormously greater than man's. Afterward, I saw them everywhere, swarming in all the great chambers and corridors, tending monstrous machines and vaulted crypts, and racing along the vast roads in gigantic, boat-shaped cars. I ceased to be afraid of them, for they seemed to form supremely natural parts of their environment. Individual differences amongst them began to manifest and a few appeared to be under some kind of restraint. These latter, though shewing no physical variation, had a diversity of gestures and habits which marked them off not only from the majority, but very largely from one another. They wrote a great deal in what seemed to my cloudy vision a vast variety of characters, never the typical curvilinear hieroglyphs of the majority. A few, I fancied, used our own familiar alphabet, most of them worked much more slowly than the general mass of entities. All this time, my own part in the dream seemed to be that of a disembodied consciousness, with a range of vision wider than the normal, floating freely about, yet confined to the ordinary avenues and speeds of travel. Not until August 1915 did any suggestions of bodily existence begin to harass me. I say harass because the first phase was purely abstract, though infinitely terrible. Association of my previously noted body loathing with the scenes of my visions. For a while, my chief concern during dreams was to avoid looking down at myself, and I recall how grateful I was for the total absence of large mirrors in the strange rooms. I was mightily troubled by the fact that I always saw the great tables, whose height could not be under ten feet from a level not below that of their surfaces. And then, the morbid temptation to look down at myself became greater and greater, till one night I could not resist it. At first, my downward glance revealed nothing whatever. A moment later, I perceived that this was because my head lay at the end of a flexible neck of enormous length. Retracting this neck and gazing down very sharply, I saw the scaly, rugose, iridescent bulk of a vast cone, ten feet tall and ten feet wide at the base. That was when I waked half of Arkham with my screaming, as I plunged madly up from the abyss of sleep. Only after weeks of hideous repetition did I grow half reconciled to these visions of myself in monstrous form. In the dreams, I now moved bodily among the other unknown entities, reading terrible books from the endless shelves, 
and writing for hours at the great tables with the stylus managed by the green tentacles that hung down from my head. Snatches of what I read and wrote would linger in my memory. There were horrible annals of other worlds and other universes, and of stirrings of formless life outside of all universes. There were records of strange orders of beings which had peopled the world in forgotten pasts, and frightful chronicles of grotesque-bodied intelligences which would people it millions of years after the death of the last human being. I learned of chapters in human history whose existence no scholar of today has ever suspected. Most of these writings were in the language of the hieroglyphs, which I studied in a queer way with the aid of droning machines, and which was evidently an agglutinative speech with root systems utterly unlike any found in human languages. Other volumes were in other unknown tongues learned in the same queer way. Very few were in languages I knew. Extremely clever pictures, both inserted in the records and forming separate collections, aided me immensely. And all the time I seemed to be setting down a history of my own age in English. On waking, I could recall only minute and meaningless scraps of the unknown tongues which my dream self had mastered, though whole phrases of the history stayed with me. I learned, even before my waking self had studied the parallel cases of the old myths from which the dreams doubtless sprang, that the entities around me were of the world's greatest race, which had conquered time and had sent exploring minds into every age. I knew, too, that I had been snatched from my age while another used my body in that age and that a few of the other strange forms housed similarly captured minds. I seemed to talk in some odd language of claw clickings, with exiled intellects from every corner of the solar system. There was a mine from the planet we know as Venus, which would live incalculable epochs to come, and one from an outer moon of Jupiter six million years in the past. Of earthly minds, there were some from the winged, star-headed, half-vegetable race of the Paleogean Antarctica. One from the reptile people of fabled Volusia. Three from the furry, pre-human, hyperborean worshippers of Sathagwa. One from the wholly abominable Chochos. Two from the arachnid denizens of Earth's last age. Five from the hardy coleopterous species immediately following mankind, to which the great race was some day to transfer its keenest minds en masse in the face of horrible peril, and several from different branches of humanity. I talked with the mind of Zhong Li, a philosopher from the cruel empire of San Xian, which is to come in 5000 AD with that of a general of the great-headed brown people who held South Africa in 50,000 BC, with that of a 12th-century Florentine monk named Bartolomeo Corsi, with that of a king of Lomar, who had ruled that terrible polar land 100,000 years before the squat yellow Inutos came from the west to engulf it. I talked with the mind of Nugsoth, a magician of the Dark Conquerors of 16,000 AD, with that of a Roman named Titus Sempronius Blasus, who had been a quester in Sulla's time, with that of Kefnes, an Egyptian of the 14th Dynasty, who told me the hideous secret of Nyarlathotep, with that of a priest of Atlantis's Middle Kingdom, 
with that of a Suffolk gentleman of Cromwell's day, James Woodville, with that of a court astronomer of pre-Inca Peru, with that of the Australian physicist Neville Kingston Brown, who will die in 2518 AD, with that of an archmage who vanished ye in the Pacific, with that of Theodotides, a Greco-Bactrian official of 200 BC, with that of an aged Frenchman of Louis XIII's time named Pierre-Louis Montagny, with that of Cromier, a Sumerian chieftain of 15,000 BC, and with so many others that my brain cannot hold the shocking secrets and dizzying marvels I learned from them. I waked each morning in a fever, sometimes frantically trying to verify or discredit such information as fell within the range of modern human knowledge. Traditional facts took on new and doubtful aspects, and I marveled at the dream fancy which could invent such surprising addenda to history and science. I shivered at the mysteries the past may conceal, and trembled at the menaces the future may bring forth. What was hinted in the speech of post-human entities of the fate of mankind produced such an effect on me that I will not set it down here. After man, there would be the mighty beetle civilization, the bodies of whose members the cream of the great race would seize when the monstrous doom overtook the elder world. Later, as the earth span closed, the transferred minds would again migrate through time and space to another stopping place in the bodies of the bulbous vegetable entities of Mercury. But there would be races after them, clinging pathetically to the cold planet and burrowing to its horror-filled core before the utter end. Meanwhile, in my dreams, I wrote endlessly in that history of my own age which I was preparing half voluntarily and half through promises of increased library and travel opportunities, for the great race's central archives. The archives were in a colossal subterranean structure near the city center, which I came to know well through frequent labors and consultations. Meant to last as long as the race itself, and to withstand the most fierce of Earth's convulsions, this titan repository surpassed all other buildings in the massive, mountain-like firmness of its construction. The records, written or printed on great sheets of curiously tenacious cellulose fabric, were bound into books that opened from the top and were kept in individual cases of a strange, extremely light, rustless metal of grayish hue, decorated with mathematical designs and bearing the title in the great race's curvilinear hieroglyphs. These cases were stored in tiers of rectangular vaults, like closed locked shelves, wrought of the same rustless metal, and fastened by knobs with intricate turnings. My own history was assigned a specific place in the vaults of the lowest or vertebrate level, the section devoted to the culture of mankind, and of the furry and reptilian races immediately preceding it in its terrestrial dominance. But none of the dreams ever gave me a full picture of daily life. All were the merest, misty, disconnected fragments, and it is certain that these fragments were not unfolded in their rightful sequence. I have, for example, a very imperfect idea of my own living arrangements in the dream world, though I seem to have possessed a great stone room of my own. My restrictions as a prisoner gradually disappeared, so that some of the visions included vivid travels over the mighty jungle roads sojourns in strange cities, 
and explorations of some of the vast, dark, windowless ruins from which the great race shrank in curious fear. There were also long sea voyages in enormous, many-decked boats of incredible swiftness, and trips over wild regions and closed projectile-like airships, lifted and moved by electrical repulsion. Beyond the wide, warm ocean were other cities of the great race, and on one far continent, I saw the crude villages of the black-snouted winged creatures who would evolve as a dominant stock after the great race had sent its foremost minds into the future to escape the creeping horror. Flatness and exuberant green life were always the keynote of the scene. Hills were low and sparse, and usually displayed signs of volcanic forces. Of the animals I saw, I could write volumes. All were wild, for the great race's mechanized culture had long since done away with domestic beasts, while food was wholly vegetable or synthetic. Clumsy reptiles of great bulk floundered in steaming morasses, fluttered in the heavy air, or spouted in the seas and lakes, and among these I fancied I could vaguely recognize lesser archaic prototypes of many forms. Dinosaurs, pterodactyls, ichthyosaurs, labyrinthodonts, plesiosaurs and the like, made familiar through paleontology. Of birds or mammals, there were none that I could discover. The ground and swamps were constantly alive with snakes, lizards, and crocodiles, while insects buzzed incessantly among the lush vegetation. And far out at sea, unspied and unknown monsters spouted mountainous columns of foam into the vaporous sky. Once, I was taken under the ocean in a gigantic submarine vessel with searchlights and glimpsed some living horrors of awesome magnitude. I saw also the ruins of incredible sunken cities and the wealth of crinoid, brachiopod, coral, and ichthyic life, which everywhere abounded. Of the physiology, psychology, folkways, and detailed history of the great race, my visions preserve but little information and many of the scattered points I here set down were gleaned from my study of old legends and other cases, rather than from my own dreaming. For in time, of course, my reading and research caught up with and passed the dreams in many phases, so that certain dream fragments were explained in advance and formed verifications of what I had learned. This consolingly established my belief that similar reading and research, accomplished by my secondary self, had formed the source of the whole terrible fabric of pseudo-memories. The period of my dreams, apparently, was one somewhat less than 150 million years ago, when the Paleozoic Age was giving place to the Mesozoic. The bodies occupied by the Great Race represented no surviving, or even scientifically known, line of terrestrial evolution, but were of a peculiar, closely homogeneous, and highly specialized organic type inclining as much as to the vegetable as to the animal state. Cell action was of a unique sort, almost precluding fatigue and wholly eliminating the need of sleep. Nourishment, assimilated through the red trumpet-like appendages on one of the great flexible limbs, was always semi-fluid and in many aspects wholly unlike the food of existing animals. The beings had but two of the senses which we recognize, sight and hearing the latter accomplished through the flower-like appendages on the grey stalks above their heads. Of other and incomprehensible senses, not however well utilizable by alien captive minds inhabiting their bodies, 
They possessed many. Their three eyes were so situated as to give them a range of vision wider than the normal. Their blood was a sort of deep greenish ichor of great thickness. They had no sex, but reproduced through seeds or spores, which clustered on their bases and could be developed only underwater. Great shallow tanks were used for the growth of their young, which were, however, reared only in small numbers on account of the longevity of individuals, four or five thousand years being the common lifespan. Markedly defective individuals were quickly disposed of as soon as their defects were noticed. Disease and the approach of death were, in the absence of a sense of touch or physical pain, recognized by purely visual symptoms. The dead were incinerated with dignified ceremonies. Once in a while, as before mentioned, a keen mind would escape death by forward projection in time, but such cases were not numerous. When one did occur, the exiled mind from the future was treated with the utmost kindness till the dissolution of its unfamiliar tenement. The great race seemed to form a single, loosely knit nation or league, with major institutions in common, though there were four definite divisions. The political and economic system of each unit was a sort of fascistic socialism, with major resources rationally distributed and power delegated to a small governing board elected by the votes of all able to pass certain educational and psychological tests. Family organization was not overstressed, though ties among persons of common descent were recognized, and the young were generally reared by their parents. Resemblances to human attitudes and institutions were, of course, most marked in those fields where on the one hand highly abstract elements were concerned, or where on the other hand, there was a dominance of the basic, unspecialized urges common to all organic life. A few added likenesses came through conscious adoption as the great race probed the future and copied what it liked. Industry, highly mechanized, demanded but little time from each citizen, and the abundant leisure was filled with intellectual and aesthetic activities of various sorts. The sciences were carried to an unbelievable height of development, and art was a vital part of life. Though, at the period of my dreams, it had passed its crest and meridian. Technology was enormously stimulated through the constant struggle to survive and to keep in existence the physical fabric of great cities imposed by the prodigious geologic upheavals of those primal days. Crime was surprisingly scant and was dealt with through highly efficient policing. Punishments ranged from privileged deprivation and imprisonment to death or major emotion-wrenching, and were never administered without a careful study of the criminal's motivations. Warfare, largely civil for the last few millennia, though sometimes waged against reptilian or octopodic invaders, or against the winged, star-headed old ones who centered in the Antarctic, was infrequent, though infinitely devastating. An enormous army, using camera-like weapons which produced tremendous electrical effects, was kept on hand for purposes seldom mentioned, but obviously connected with the ceaseless fear of the dark, windowless elder ruins and of the great sealed trap doors in the lowest subterranean levels. This fear of the basalt ruins and trap doors was largely a matter of unspoken suggestion, or, at most, of furtive quasi-whispers. Everything specific which bore on it was significantly absent from such books as were on the common shelves. It was the one subject lying altogether under a taboo under the great race, 
and seemed to be connected alike with horrible bygone struggles and with that future peril which would someday force the race to send its keener minds ahead en masse in time. Imperfect and fragmentary as were the other things presented by dreams and legends, this matter was still more bafflingly shrouded. The vague old myths avoided it, or perhaps all illusions had for some reason been excised, and in the dreams of myself and others, the hints were peculiarly few. Members of the great race never intentionally referred to the matter, and what could be gleaned came only from some of the more sharply observant captive minds. According to these scraps of information, the basis of the fear was a horrible elder race of half-polypus, utterly alien entities, which had come through space from immeasurably distant universes, and had dominated the Earth and three other solar planets about 600 million years ago. They were only partly material, as we understand matter, and their type of consciousness and media of perception differed widely from those of terrestrial organisms. For example, their senses did not include that of sight, their mental world being a strange, non-visual pattern of impressions. They were, however, sufficiently material to use implements of normal matter when in cosmic areas containing it, and they required housing albeit of a peculiar kind. Their senses could penetrate all mental barriers, their substance could not, and certain forms of electrical energy could wholly destroy them. They had the power of aerial motion, despite the absence of wings or any other visible means of levitation. Their minds were of such texture that no exchange with them could be effected by the great race. When these things had come to the earth, they had built mighty basalt cities of windowless towers, and had preyed horribly upon the beings they found. Thus, it was when the minds of the great race sped across the void from that obscure transgalactic world, known in the disturbing and debatable Eltdown shards as Yith. The newcomers, with the instruments they created, had found it easy to subdue the predatory entities and drive them down to those caverns of inner earth, which they had already joined to their abodes and begun to inhabit. Then they had sealed the entrances and left them to their fate, afterward occupying most of their great cities and preserving certain important buildings for reasons connected more with superstition than with indifference, boldness, or scientific and historical zeal. But as the aeons passed, there came vague, evil signs that the elder things were growing strong and numerous in the inner world. There were sporadic eruptions of a particularly hideous character in certain small and remote cities of the Great Race, and in some of the deserted elder cities which the Great Race had not peopled, places where the paths to the gulfs below had not been properly sealed or guarded. After that, great precautions were taken and many of the paths were closed forever, though a few were left with sealed trapdoors for strategic use in fighting the Elder Things if ever they broke forth in unexpected places. The eruptions of the Elder Things must have been shocking beyond all description since they had permanently colored the psychology of the Great Race. Such was the fixed mood of horror that the very aspect of the creatures was left unmentioned. At no time was I able to gain a clear hint of what they looked like. There were veiled suggestions of a monstrous plasticity and of temporary lapses of visibility while other fragmentary whispers referred to their control 
and military use of great winds. Singular whistling noises and colossal footprints made up of five circular toe marks seemed also to be associated with them. It was evident that the coming doom so desperately feared by the great race, the doom that was one day to send millions of keen minds across the chasm of time to strange bodies in the safer future, had to do with the final successful eruption of the elder beings. Mental projections down the ages had clearly foretold such a horror, and the great race had resolved that none who could escape should face it. That the foray would be a matter of vengeance rather than an attempt to reoccupy the outer world they knew from the planet's later history, for their projection shewed the coming and going of subsequent races untroubled by the monstrous entities. Perhaps these entities had come to prefer Earth's inner abysses to the variable, storm-ravaged surface, since light meant nothing to them. Perhaps, too, they were slowly weakening with the aeons. Indeed, it was known that they would be quite dead in the time of the post-human beetle race which the fleeing minds would tenant. Meanwhile, the great race maintained its cautious vigilance, with potent weapons ceaselessly ready despite the horrified banishing of the subject from common speech and visible records. And, always, the shadow of nameless fear hung about the sealed trap doors and the dark, windowless Elder Towers. You've been listening to Part 1 of The Shadow Out of Time by Howard Phillips Lovecraft, with Part 2 and the conclusion coming next episode. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Horror Hill. Don't forget to tune in again next week, when I yet again regale you with a handful of tales to terrify, plumb from the most depraved depths of the human imagination. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive, dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors... You help support this show, and that means a lot to me too. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, we may meet up once again for another Dance with Darkness. I bid you good night, sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. 
The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Felipe Ojeda, Luke Hodgkinson, and Jesse Cornett. Final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshak. The program's artwork by yours truly, Jason Hill. Logo by Craig Groshak. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for Chilling Tales for Dark Nights as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. 
Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.